Before we do that, a number of people have asked me why in our messages and when I do project scripture on the screen, why I have changed really a number, all of the translations but one, why I have changed when it says the Lord with L-O-R-D in capitals, why I have changed that to the actual name of God, Yahweh, the name that he gave to Moses at the burning bush. When Moses said, who shall I say has sent me? He answered, I am has sent you. In other words, the eternally existent one, actually, I am existence, but it's I am. In fact, he said, I am that I am. And uh, the Hebrew is called the Tetragrammaton. It's four letters in Hebrew. When it's transliterated, it comes out as Yahweh. Some would say as Jehovah, but uh, Hebrew doesn't doesn't use vowels. And the reason that I have changed the English translations that we have is in order to correct what is clearly a purposeful error that the translators have been making for hundreds of years. Because in the last, oh, I don't know how many, 800,000 years, because the Jewish people themselves, they have chosen to not speak the name of God. They've chosen not to speak his name, even though he says in Exodus, after he gave Moses his name, he said, this is the name that I am to be known by for all generations. Nonetheless, the Jews have decided not to pronounce his name whether it's because they're afraid of speaking his name in vain, or they would say his name is too holy to actually speak. Their reasoning contradicts what God himself has said. And in the actual Greek and Hebrew of our Bibles that has been translated to English, Yahweh is what is there in both the Greek and Hebrew. Now, when there's the word Lord in lowercase, 
that's usually the word Adonai, and that's a correct translation. But I have chosen to use what God himself has used in the writing of his book and to not follow what I believe is a terrible error in the modern translations that we have. That's why I have done that. And I'll continue to do that. I have personally found that when I am reading God's Word, and in my mind, I make the change as I'm reading to Yahweh. I am finding that the Word of God is more personal to me because it's actually his name. It's not his title. So that's why I do it. Some people don't like it because it's, it's strange, it's different. And many of us have memorized verses that use the Lord. Um, in fact, one that we'll look at today is one that is uh, so well used that it, it, it seems awkward to correct it to what God has actually written. But um, anyway, that's the reason. Some have asked, some have wondered, some have just shaken their head and say, what are you doing that for? That's the reason. That's the reason. I'll be glad to talk to any of you uh, aside about that. And we can look at what our Bibles say in the translation discussion at the beginning when they try to explain why they're following a tradition instead of accurate translation. Okay, now we will begin today's message. Joshua 24, Joshua's final address, part two, because chapter 23 was a different version of what was probably the same meeting. As he was very close to the end, Joshua brought the nation together in order to speak to them as the prophet of God, as the very spokesman of Yahweh. And through Joshua, God recounted the history of the nation from before he called Abraham, from the time of Abraham's ancestors on the other side of the Euphrates River. These people who worshiped pagan false gods as did Abraham himself before he was called away from them by Yahweh. As you know, that has been the way of God through all of history. Even, even as Paul said to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1.9, speaking to them and of others who were speaking about the Thessalonians, he said, for they themselves declare concerning us, us Christians, what manner of entry we had to you, and how, here it is, how you turned to God from idols, 
to serve the living and true God. And really, I know it's early to make some application, but isn't it the same story for you and me? Weren't we called away from whatever, whatever false idols or belief systems we were into? Weren't we called away by the Holy Spirit who is drawing us to Christ? I know that's certainly the case for me, and I believe it's certainly the case for you as well. You know, we should never lose sight of that. Of, of where we come from, what Christ has saved us out of. It's too common in the church today for people who have been Christians a long time to forget where they came from. It should be something that's very humbling for us and something that helps us remember that anything that is good about us or about what we do is because of Jesus Christ saving us. It's not because we're so hot. And because, folks, we should never forget that because that is precisely the way that we need to pray for every unbeliever. That the Holy Spirit would draw them away from whatever false beliefs or idol worship they're into. And he would invade their hearts with the love of Christ and the truth of the gospel, urging them to repent and to turn from false gods to the one true God, to Yahweh the Father, Yahweh the Son, and Yahweh the Holy Spirit. So, Joshua begins before the beginning with his brief history of the nation. He leads them through the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Esau, through the centuries in Egypt and his plagues through Moses and Aaron. Then the Exodus and the Red Sea, the wilderness wandering, and the conquests on the east side of the Jordan under Moses, along with his rejection of the dangerous false prophet, Balaam. Then the crossing of the Jordan and the conquest of Canaan. And all through this history, remember this is Yahweh speaking through Joshua. So he's the one who will do this. We'll read this in a moment. But all through this history, Yahweh emphasizes his central role in all of it. He uses words like, I gave, I plagued, I brought you out, I destroyed. And finally, finally, I have given you a land for which you did not labor and cities which you did not build, and you dwell in them. You eat of the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. 
So in the first 13 verses of this chapter, as we'll see, Yahweh took them literally from Genesis chapter 11 to the 22nd chapter of this book of Joshua, always reminding them of their dependence on him as he recounted their history. And they received land, cities, olive groves, and vineyards that they hadn't built or planted. Clearly, Yahweh is making contrasts between the false gods beyond the river, beyond the Euphrates and Ur of the Chaldees, and the false gods of Egypt, where the Israelites lived and were immersed for 400 years, and the false gods of the Amorites and the Canaanites. He's contrasting them to the true, living, and very active real God, who is Yahweh. Those other gods, they did nothing. They were made by human hands. They were unable to see, to hear, to speak, to smell, to feel, or even to think while Yahweh did and does everything, including, so wonderful, including direct and personal contact and communication with us, his people. Now, I'll ask you, what do we see when we look back over our lives thus far? beginning before the beginning of our born-again lives and seeing those many times when, were it not for our Lord, we would have crashed and failed. How often are we aware of our total dependence upon Him and how we should respond? I believe, as Joshua will elaborate for the people of his time, I believe that our response needs to be more, much more, than just an expression of gratitude. I know we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving in a couple of weeks, and that's a good thing. It's a holiday that was named, was called, it exists for people to celebrate the provision of Almighty God and to be thankful to Him for all that He's provided. I know in modern days people have tried to make it mean something else, but that's what it means. That's great. It's a day that we celebrate God's provision. But our response to that needs to be much more. Now, let's read those first 13 verses together. If you have your cross-reference sheet, I have them printed for you, or you have your Bibles open to Joshua 24. We'll read those first 13 verses, and then Joshua's therefore conclusion of how the people should respond. Beginning in verse 1. 
Then Joshua gathered all the <clears throat> excuse me. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers. And they presented themselves before God. Now, that presenting themselves before God is quite solemn, very serious, and very similar to the time that Yahweh called the people to present themselves before him at Mount Sinai in order to hear him speak the Ten Commandments. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says Yahweh, God of Israel. In other words, he's using the pronouncement terminology of a prophet. So he's going to be speaking with the voice of God. Quote, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river, the Euphrates, in old times, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river. He took him away from worshiping pagan false gods, led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants, and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau I gave the mountains of Seir to process, to possess, rather. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. If you remember at the end of Genesis, Jacob and all his family totaled about 70, 70 people. God goes on. Also, I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt according to what I did among them. Afterward, I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. So they cried out to Yahweh, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. Then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time. And I brought you into the land of the Amorites, who dwell on the other, that's the eastern side, of the Jordan. And they fought with you, but I gave them into your hand, that you might possess their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose to make war against Israel, and sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam, therefore he continued to bless you. So I delivered you out of his hand. Then you went over the Jordan 
Here we come to the beginning of this book we're studying. Then you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the men of Jericho fought against you. Also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. But I delivered them into your hand. We read that. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you. Also the two kings of the Amorites. But not with your sword or with your bow. I have given you a land for which you did not labor, and cities which you did not build, and you dwell in them. You eat of the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. So, in these verses, Yahweh has summarized their history, emphasizing how very much he has done for them. And Joshua now proclaims what should be the very clear conclusion, the, the application, the takeaway from what Yahweh himself has said and has done. So now in verse 14, Joshua speaks. He says, now, therefore, there's that word, before, therefore, because of what has just been said, because of what he has done. Now, therefore, fear Yahweh, serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve Yahweh. And if it seems evil to you, <clears throat> excuse me, to serve Yahweh, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. I know you've all heard those words. Maybe some of you have them on plaques in your houses. Very strong, very profound, very powerful words from Joshua. Short, very short. Verses 14 and 15, two verses, but very clear. And what should be very obvious to anyone who has experienced the many miracles and blessings of the Lord. In other words, Joshua is saying, get rid of all those pieces of junk hidden in your tents, in your tents and wholly, fully, and sincerely obey, love, and serve Yahweh. We read that back in chapter 22 and 23. See, that is certainly what me and my house will do, he said. But you must choose. You, nation of Israel, you, readers of this book, 3,500 years later, you must decide. 
You cannot sit on the fence or try to mix and blend Yahweh and his truth with the pagan junk that's all around you. We see a lot of that today. People take a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of Judaism, some Islam, some Deism, some this, and they mix it all together and they call themselves Baha'i. That's what the Baha'i religion does, but so much more. It says, stop doing that. Again, the parallel with us and the true church of our time is so very strong. There are enticing evil temptations that are now permeating our society, including, shamefully, the nominal church. But we have the absolute truth in God's word. We have the spirit of truth actually living inside of us, along with our own reborn spirit. As was true of the Israelites under Joshua, so is true of the church under Jesus Christ. We must see and clearly identify the false and evil things surrounding us and then choose to push them aside and then to obey, love, and serve Yahweh as our Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what. And so, in response to Joshua's exhortation, the people answered. And it's very encouraging. Verse 16. So the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake Yahweh to serve other gods. For Yahweh our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And Yahweh drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites, who dwelt in the land. So they say, we also will serve Yahweh, for he is our God. It couldn't be any clearer. The people would follow Joshua's example and his choice, and they would serve Yahweh. They'd witnessed so much of what he had done for them. They'd be fools to decide any other way. But then Joshua throws a challenge at them. Verse 19, he says, Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve Yahweh, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake Yahweh and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm 
and consume you after he has done you good. It's a strong warning. He'll do you, he'll turn against you after he's done you so much good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve Yahweh. So Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen Yahweh for yourselves to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. Now, therefore, he said, Put away the foreign gods which are among you. He knew that they, they had stuff hidden in their tents. It reminds me, if you'll remember in Genesis, when Jacob took all of his flocks and his four wives and his 12 sons and a daughter, he took them and left Laban to return home. You might remember that Rachel, that favored wife of Jacob's, Rachel had stolen her father's household idols and had them in her saddlebags. And then she lied to him and tricked him into not inspecting her saddlebags. You read about that in Genesis 31. He says, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to Yahweh, God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, Yahweh our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. Again, this was a very solemn thing. Not only had the people presented themselves before Almighty God, but they had also solemnly sworn to serve and obey him and had entered into a covenant, which is a, a solemn commitment with God as had Noah, Abraham, Jacob, and Moses before them. Unfortunately, in our day, we lose sight of the fact that marriage is also a covenant. It's a covenant between three people, the bride, the groom, and God. It's a covenant. It's meant to be as long as they live. I'm thinking of that because I have two friends who were married yesterday. Some of you know Tom George. And uh, he married a woman that he met over 10 years ago. I was with them at the time. And I'd been bugging him for 10 years to marry them, to marry her. And uh, I'm kind of sad right now because 
after I had, they'd set the date and I'd bought my tickets, I was going to go to upstate New York and officiate at their wedding yesterday. But because after that, my surgery was scheduled for surgeries, were scheduled for tomorrow and Tuesday, um, I couldn't go. Uh, it would be something that would wipe me out. But you see, a covenant is so very, very important. And it's a, a blight, really, on, on our world today that so many people treat their marriage covenant as nothing more than going steady. You see, Joshua had challenged their stated commitment, but they had accepted his challenge and held to their promise. And as we'll see, this generation of Israelites held to that covenant. They were faithful to it. In the meantime, we read that Joshua wrote the story, the book we've been studying for the last seven months, and included it in the book of the law, expanding the canon of revealed scripture. Let's read that. Verse 26. Then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. He knew that he was adding to Moses. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of Yahweh. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness to us. <laughs> and listen to the reasoning. For it has heard all the words of Yahweh, which he spoke to us. It shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. And that was the end of what Joshua said to the people. In verse 28, Joshua let the people depart each to his own inheritance. You know, stones had been set up as sacred witnesses previously, again by Noah, Abraham, and Jacob. You might remember as Jacob was leaving Canaan to go north to find a wife and to escape his brother Esau, you might remember that he set up a stone after he had that vision at night of that stairway to heaven with angels going up and down. And when he said, surely, this must be the doorway to heaven. So he named that place Bethel, house of God. Those stones were important, especially before the tabernacle was established. And you'll also remember in the book we're reading now, the piles of large stones that Joshua set up both in the midst of the Jordan River and on the east side after they had crossed. Those stones were set up as witnesses to Yahweh's miracles and his blessings. In this case, 
the large stone was a witness to the renewed covenant Israel had made that day with Yahweh. And then Joshua released the people from this solemn assembly to return home. Verse 29. Now it came to pass after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Yahweh, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance of Timnath Sarah, which is in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gash. Israel served Yahweh all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of Yahweh, which he had done for Israel. Wonderful. So the generation that had served under Joshua and had been eyewitnesses of the great blessings and miracles of Yahweh remained faithful to the covenant even after Joshua's death. They also remembered the oath that Joseph had taken from his family as he died nearly 500 years earlier, which was honored by Moses in the Exodus. And now, finally, by the children of Israel, as they buried Joseph's bones, finally, in the promised land. We read that in Genesis and Exodus, and I want to share those with you. In Genesis chapter 50, the last chapter, <clears throat> Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. And then in Exodus chapter 13, as they're going through this Exodus, before they cross the Red Sea, we read, And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. So this leads us to the, the end of our chapter. Verse 32 of chapter 24. The bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem in the plot of ground which Jacob, who was Joseph's father, had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver, and which had become an inheritance of the children of Joseph, 
So it was an inheritance of Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's boys. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died. They buried him in a hill belonging to Phinehas, his son, which was given to him in the mountains of Ephraim. And thus we come to the end of the book of Joshua. I've enjoyed this book. I've enjoyed sharing it with you. I hope you have as well. I believe we've all learned some things that perhaps we didn't know were in these pages. But if you turn the page now and keep reading, you'll find that chapter 1 and the first nine verses of chapter 2 of the book of Judges is largely a summary and a repeat of the last chapters of Joshua. But then you'll read a tragic few verses, which will lead into about 400 years of the roller coaster history of Israel, often called the sin cycle, the faithful, unfaithful, faithful, unfaithful cycle of Israel. I'm going to read in Judges chapter 2, verses 10 to 13. When all that generation, that's the one that Joshua and those who survived him, when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know Yahweh, nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of Yahweh, and they served the Baals, those false gods. And they forsook Yahweh, God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. Precisely what Moses and Joshua had repeatedly warned them against. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked Yahweh to anger. They forsook Yahweh and served Baal and the Ashtoreths, those sex gods. After all that Joshua and his generation went through, and those before them, being faithful to their God. Just one generation later, it all turned to mush. We see that in the history of the church as well. Any of you who have studied church history, and I recommend it highly to you, I've got a, a very well-written and short 
history of the church. It's actually available for free online if you have eSword. In the history of the church, where the founders of a strong biblical movement, they maintained their faith with God and their movement, their denomination, their ministry was strong, very strong. But the following generations lose that fire for the Lord and they blend in their own ideas. They rationalize compromises with the evil world. And what had been a strong movement for the Lord becomes a shameful skeleton of itself and truly loses its Christianity. Some examples for you. John Wesley and George Whitfield, founders of Methodism, would be horribly sick if they could see what the Methodist pretend church has become. In the same way, I know that Martin Luther would be aghast to see the organization that carries his name today. The same for the Episcopalians coming from the Anglicans, the Church of England that really was founded only for Henry VIII's political battle with the Pope and see what it is today. It's truly an abomination. Supporting, proclaiming, and preaching evil. Directly contrary to God's word. Likewise, John Calvin and John Knox, if they were able to see the Presbyterian churches today, they'd be horrified. And then, sadly, I believe that Chuck Smith would not at all be happy to see the factions and the emergent, self-serving hero pastors in the Calvary Chapel movement today. Many of them have drifted far from the basic tenets that gave Calvary chapels such Holy Spirit power from the late 1960s until Chuck Smith died in 2013. That's just nine years ago. Now, I know that a number of those pastors were waiting for his death before they made their move. And it's brought terrible schism, separation, split. 
in Calvary Chapel. I'm glad to say, however, that a number of the more mature and faithful pastors, rather than taking sides in this truly theological battle, they have chosen to pretty much say, I'm not going to be a part of any of that. And they've changed the name of their churches from Calvary Chapel of whatever city or town to Calvary Church, period. And they keep doing what they've been doing. And they've not allowed themselves to be a part of that crazy split. But you see, the ebb and flow of roller coaster faith isn't just about the ancient Israelites. It's not just about church movements. It's also very evident in the individual lives of many Christians. So my prayer for us as we bring our study of this chapter and of this book, as we bring it to an end, is a very simple prayer. And I pray that you would join me in it as I speak. Dear Lord Jesus, I pray that by your strength and guidance, as for me and our church fellowship, as for me and my family, and the families of our church fellowship, we will love, serve, and obey you, our Savior and our God, as long as we live no matter what you allow to occur in our lives. And we pray this, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.